Uh, good morning, everyone. Once again, breakfast will be served shortly. So glad everyone made it to the BRL Breakfast 2019. Thank you for cooperating with your tickets. That made life a lot easier for us. Good job. So I hope you enjoy the breakfast, and we will start the program afterwards. I'm Paul Edwards. I'm president of the Braille Revival League. And I thought that what might make the most sense uh, is for us to do things in two halves. So I think that what I'm going to do is to ask Ralph Smitherman if he would be so kind as to take the mic around now as we're sort of gradually getting our breakfast served so that we can identify for ourselves who's here. And then immediately after breakfast, we will give out our exciting beginning code and then uh, we'll hear from, from our speaker that I am personally really looking forward to hearing from. Mr. Fred Schroeder is here, and I am excited uh, f uh, about the fact that he's here. So what I'm going to do now is to hand this mic to Ralph Smitherman and ask him to go around. So as I said, my name is Paul Edwards. I'm from Miami, Florida, and uh, I reiterate that uh, Braille readers feel well. Oh. Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. Hello, my, na my name is Mary Haroyan from Massachusetts, and I'm a, a new Braille Revival League member. Venkatesh Chari from Orbit Research, Massachusetts. Marion Howell from Claymont, Delaware. I'm Suzanne Howell from Claymont, Delaware, and I love my Braille, and I'm, I'm working on UEB. Oh, thank you. Uh, Ann Parsons, Rochester, New York. Okay. You have passed to my left? Yeah, should be good. Oh, yeah. Sir? Oh. There you go. Joe Sorensen, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Braille, Braille, do not fail. We will read and write with all of our might. <laughs> I'm Ellen, his other half, and... We're back. Tim Miller from California. Jane Corona from Silver Spring, Maryland, BRL treasurer. So if anyone's not a member, uh, you can come and see me and become so, or rejoin or whatever. Thanks. <laughs> Mary Beth Metzger, originally from here, but li li now living in Albany, New York. Joan Cox, and from um, San, San Angelo, Texas. Suzanne Erb, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, first time convention attender. Patty Cordell from Orlando, Florida. <clears throat> Sheila Young, Orlando, Florida. Okay. Olivia Chavez, El Paso, Texas. Here I am. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. 
Kate Crohan, Arlington, Mass. Chris Hunsinger, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Darlene Johnson from Janesville, Wisconsin. And I'm Fred Schroeder from Vienna, Virginia. And I'm Kim Charlson from Watertown, Massachusetts. <laughs> I'm Judy Dixon from Arlington, Virginia. Richard, Richard Johnson, Janesville, Wisconsin. David Trott from Talladega, Alabama. I am ACB treasurer. Bob Bradley, Jacksonville, Alabama. Eleanor Baker from Oxford, Alabama. Norman Dolkey from Oklahoma. Rhonda Trott, BRL board member. And David wants me to tell you we got Braille form raffle tickets for sale. Judy Jackson, past president of BRL, and I am from Stewart's Raft, Virginia, I'm soon to be moving to Richmond. So the question is, it's whatever time it is, does anyone know where Judy is? I'm Patty Slaby from Arcadia, Wisconsin, and I'm a life member of BRL. Guillermo Robles from Los Angeles, California. Steve Bauer from Los Angeles, retired Braille instructor, so I have even more time to read my own Braille. Jim Crott, uh, board member, ACB, BRL member, Florida Council of the Blind, Media past president, Miami, Florida is where I live. Okay. Frank Welty, NLS certified UEB transcriber, working at the Media and Accessible Design Laboratory at the Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired in San Francisco, California. All right, certified UEB, that's good. Michael Byington, Topeka, Kansas. I want to mention for those of you who have been asking that my wife Ann Byington, who is not here this year because of having emergency surgery last week, is recovering well and sends her love to everyone here. Also because your speaker is Fred Schroeder, I will mention that I work as a certified orientation and mobility specialist in private practice 
working mostly with school children, and that's a role that would not have been available to blind and legally blind people, uh, except for the advocacy of a number of people, including Fred Schroeder. Pat Sheehan, ACB board member, Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, Amar Shafara, certified vision rehabilitation therapist and treasurer of the Georgia Council of the Blind, Somerville, Georgia. Hello, this is Oral Miller from uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, as far as my past is concerned, a number of uh, different positions, including one as president of the American Council and even as national representative once upon a time, and others. Thank you. Sandy Rukinich, Utah. Good job. Marjorie Beeman, certified Brailleist. Braille is the way. And I am Ralph Smitherman, BRL secretary, and I don't think I left anyone out, uh, except for these people over here. My bad, it's a vision thing with me. All right, we're good. Here's the microphone. Gordon Hubert, Louisiana. Michael Alvarez from Portland, Oregon, reader of Braille in three languages at that. Has anyone else come in that I don't know about? Okay. All right. Okay. Karen Eichel, Braille Revival League of Texas President. Denise Colley, ACB board member and first vice president of BRL from Lacey, Washington. All right, anyone else? Yes, Rob. Okay, here you go. Judy Wilkinson from California. California. Steve Mendelson from California. There you go, Ralph. Thank you. Did I leave any other table? Evidently not. Good job. All right. Enjoy your breakfast. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to let you continue your conversations in just a second, but um, I, I just want to thank everyone for, for being here. We have we have a, a really distinguished attendance list. Um, one, one person I'd like to mention in particular so that you guys may get an opportunity as time goes on 
um, to talk to her some more is Sandy Rukinitz from Utah, who is also BRL's representative to BANA. So um, if, if you guys have questions about UEB or about where BANA is going in any direction, um, Sandy's the person you want to talk with. Um, and I'd also like to thank Sandy for her continuing helpfulness. We did a, we did a BRL conference call in June on Braille displays for under $1,000, and Sandy was very helpful. So thank you, as always, Miss Sandy, for all your support. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy your breakfast, and we'll be back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, as somebody said. At, now, ch at children of all ages, I'm being given all kinds of salutations for everyone. Little dots of humanity. <laughs> I think Mr. Swanson needs to teach us that, that, that cheer. Um, I, I would like to uh, once again welcome everybody to our, our BRL breakfast. And I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm being told it's our, it's our 10th anniversary breakfast. We started when Louis Braille was 200. We started in 2009. I am. I have it in my very hand. Write it down so I can get it from you, Marsha. Now, it, 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 is, it is my pleasure to encourage collusion and cheating. So, in, in introducing our guest speaker, um, it, it, is, it is exciting for me to uh, actually be able to introduce someone who I've, I've had the pleasure to know for, gosh, over 30 years now. Um, we found ourselves uh, over, over the past two decades, three decades, um, presenting together. Um, and sometimes um, with very different positions. <laughs> but, Never. but one of the things that I have always admired about Fred Schroeder is not only his commitment to Braille, but his commitment uh, to Braille in uh, the third world. Um, I had the pleasure of working with one of the smartest young men uh, who I have uh, worked with as a student at Miami-Dade College, uh, who was an associate of Fred's from Lima, Peru, and I think went on to become a lawyer. Um, and truly one of the most capable young men that I met and had the opportunity to talk with Fred some about his connection with Peru, which came long before his involvement with the World Blind Union. Um, he's an advocate for Braille, an advocate for blind people, and potentially, I think, the best president that the World Blind Union will ever have. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce in a moment Mr. Fred Schroeder, but before I do that, in, in order to prevent Marsha from attacking, <laughs> I will give you the beginning code for the breakfast, which is 16456. 
otherwise known as AFDEF. So the code is AFDEF, 16456. Or, or And I stay tuned at the end for the end code. So it's with great pleasure um, that I introduce to all of you a person who I would love to call a friend, Mr. Fred Schroeder. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And I, you know, people always say that and you think, yeah, do you really, you know, I mean, come on, do you really mean it? I mean it in, and, and I mean it quite sincerely to be with a group of people who are committed advocates for Braille. And uh, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but Braille is our means to true and, and equal literacy. And uh, if, you know, there's all sorts of ways you can look at it. If you look at the employment rate of blind adults, those who are, who are good Braille and uh, reading and, ah, I can't even speak this morning, uh, who are able to read and write Braille well, uh, their employment is better. Uh, well, of course it is. If you look at the sighted population, literacy tracks very much with employment and the quality of employment. So why would that be different? So what are the, what are the challenges to Braille? Well, there are a number of them. Some are mechanical, and uh, it's the, the ability to produce Braille, although today, at least in the United States, it is easier to produce Braille, certainly, than at any time in my lifetime. I, I grew up at the time when uh, most of the Braille that was produced for education was hand-copied by Braille transcribers sitting at a Perkins Brailler. So uh, it's certainly easier to produce Braille, but Braille is still not as readily available as we would like. So when you think about children, what, what are the barriers? Well. You've got to have people who know how to teach the child to read and write Braille. You have to have access to the materials, probably at least a Braille printer and people who know how to format and produce the Braille. But you need other things. One of the things that is fundamental in my mind are expectations, grade or age-appropriate expectations for kids. Now. I ran a, a public school program for blind kids back in the 80s. And so I'm, I'm not against mainstreaming. Uh, I think, frankly, it's a little bit ridiculous to have this sort of, you know, should, should we have schools for the blind or should, you know, my mind is let's figure out the best way to deliver education and not yeah. worry over much about the rest of it. But, you know, obviously, if you can, you want your child at home. So I ran a public school program. We started with a very basic premise. We said our kids are going to read at or above grade level in Braille, period. That was our IEP goal. And if the child wasn't, then it was on us. We needed to provide more instruction. We needed to do something to bring the child up to grade level. And yet today, and like I say, this is not a slam on on inclusive education, but far too often a blind child is the only blind child in a school and people don't know anything about blind people or how kids learn. And so you'll see a child who's in second or third grade reading at a primer level or maybe 
maybe a first grade level. And people, when you ask about it, they'll say, oh, she is so happy. Well, okay, I'm glad she's happy, but she can't read properly. And I, I, again, I don't say this out of bitterness, but to highlight the point that people don't know what we can do. And so if the child is happy and doing something, very often the parents are told by the, by the school staff that everything's fine. And in fact, I'll tell you this story. I went to graduate school in the 70s. That's the 1970s, just to clarify. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we were, this was to become a teacher of blind kids. We were told, as, as just an indisputable fact, we were told blind children will be behind academically, period. Not some will, not X percent, no. Blind children will, so just kind of get over it. They're going to be behind academically. And that was the foundation for saying when you integrated kids into regular class, you should do it into non-academic classes because they couldn't compete in academic classes. What a mindset to start out with. Anyway, you all know these horror stories and I won't, I won't belabor it. I will say that um, one, of the, one of the real challenges worldwide is everything that we experience or have experienced in the US but magnified. As I mentioned yesterday, in many developing countries, blind kids simply don't go to school, period. So it's not a matter of, are they reading at grade level? They're not reading at all. And if you grow up entirely illiterate, your, your chances of living a productive, active life, it's not impossible, but it becomes very, very difficult. Certainly makes the probability much, much less. And that has a cascade effect. If you grow up illiterate, well, I grew up illiterate. I, I lost most of my sight when I was seven and a half and um, did not learn Braille until I graduated from high school. Wow. And I can tell you from my own experience, I, well, so from second grade until I graduated, I was exempt from all reading, writing, and math work. Now you take that out of the curriculum, there's precious little left. Uh, Judy's saying, boy, this explains a lot about him. I could <laughs> she just tweeted that out in case anyone was wondering. So, you know, but where, where I'm going with that is I can remember being in class and feeling inferior, feeling like all these sighted kids know more than I know. Well, of course they knew more. They were reading the material and I wasn't. But as a kid, you don't logically connect it like that. All you know is everyone around you seems to know a lot more than you know. And so the devastation goes beyond simply the mechanical lack of a good quality education. It ingrains in blind children a feeling that they cannot compete. And if you kill somebody's spirit, if you damage their belief in themselves, you've made the, the possibility of a productive life even harder. Okay, so what are we doing about it? I mentioned the Right to Read campaign, and it has many, many facets to it. But the, one of the major components was the Marrakesh Treaty. The idea of the Marrakesh Treaty to allow materials to be shared internationally. That's a key part, but like any other big problem, there is not just one 
solution. For example, the U.S. is not going to produce extra Braille books, I should say like the Library of Congress. They're, they're not going to produce thousands and thousands of extra Braille books to hand to people in other countries uh, and because of two things, economics, but also just the nature of political systems. The Congress would say, wait a minute, why are we why are we spending money to produce Braille that doesn't help our citizens? Which is, you know, a reasonable, reasonable concern. So how is Marrakesh going to deliver it? Well, primarily, books and other materials will be delivered electronically. These could be text files, but they could also be audio files. But I'm going to deal with material that can be displayed in, in Braille. Once those materials are in electronic format, then the possibility of getting into the hands hundreds, maybe thousands of Braille books for a child in a developing country goes up. Now, handing a child in a developing country an SD card and saying, you know, if you could only figure out how to get into it, there are 300 books there, that isn't the whole story. You need a low-cost, refreshable Braille display. And so the World Blind Union, back I think in 2012, were able, was able to get a, a group of organizations from around the world to help fund the research and development to bring down the cost of refreshable Braille displays. The Braille display, or the Braille note taker that I previously used, uh, the Braille note touch, I've forgotten what it cost, but it was over $5,000. A very sophisticated piece of equipment but if you're in a developing country where the, where the average annual income is a few hundred dollars, uh, you're not going to get that child a $5,000 Braille de device. And even if you were able to get Bill Gates or one of these billionaires to buy tens of thousands of these $5,000 Braille devices, what happens when it breaks? There's no infrastructure to have it repaired and so on. So bringing down the cost of refreshable Braille had two parts to it. One was just simply being able to buy it, but the other is to get the cost down to the point where the, the maintenance wasn't such a big issue. Now, we're not quite at the point where I would say we have Braille devices that when they break, you throw them away, but I, we're not far away from that. We're not far away from the point where would be able to get devices to kids and when they do break down, if they're easily repairable, of course, that's great if we can help develop the infrastructure. But get them down to a price where they are reasonably repra replaceable. If the device lasts a year or three years and the device is, say, four or $500, maintaining access to a Braille device is much, much more achievable. So the Transforming Braille group developed, uh, helped fund the development of the Orbit Reader 20, and I noticed Vankatesh is here this morning, and um, I said I have a Braille Note Touch, I do, but I also have an Orbit Reader 20, and it is a very, very nice Braille display. Um, if you haven't seen it, you should go to the exhibit hall, I'm sure one is there. It makes this I like that it makes this little clicking sound when it refreshes. I don't know why. Uh, it has something to do with the engineering. 
And, uh, but it's not, in, in my mind, it's not intrusive, and it's certainly a lot less intrusive than the old Perkins sitting on a kid's desk. <laughs> I know some of you did that. So, um, and some of you fossils out there may have even had a thing that is called a slate and stylus. <clears throat> yeah, if, uh, if you're in Washington, Judy can take you to the Smithsonian. They have one there that you can see. Um, so, so anyway, the Orbit Reader 20 brought the price down there. The, the price is, is in the five to $600 range. Uh, the initial release price was a little bit lower, but uh, the initial orders did not come in as, as, uh, as large as had been originally hoped. And of course, the more you produce of anything, the cheaper you can produce it. But, but it's still affordable. I, I believe it's being sold for $600 through Orbit uh, technology. But it's an interesting device. It's a, it's a simple note taker, but what it would allow is a child to get books on, on an SD card and uh, then, as I say, have access to literally hundreds and hundreds of books because of the, the technology, but coupled together with the Marrakesh Treaty that allows countries to share these electronic files. As I say, these issues are so complex and so there's so many twists and turns to them. Uh, in very poor countries, you might not have access to the internet. And in which case, what do you do? Well, then you hope that there is a, a uh, library or some sort of rehabilitation facility for the blind that does have internet. So if nothing else, perhaps you can go visit there periodically and download books, or perhaps they can be mailed. But it is an enormous step forward in trying to get Braille into the hands of blind children. 253 million blind people, that is the estimate, and yet the unemployment of blind adults is staggering. And really, to make a difference, what do we need to do? Well, the mechanical side, we need to insist that kids get access to good quality Braille reading and writing instruction. And by good quality, I mean age appropriate. You know, like, I, in fact, I got criticized on an audit when I was a special ed administrator. They said we couldn't have the IEP goal. We, the way an IEP works for a child is you have this kind of general or overarching goal and then you have objectives and so on below that. So when I ran the public school program, all of our kids, every last one of our blind kids, the overarching goal said Jim or Kim or whoever, whomever, sorry Kim, um, so-and-so um, will, will, let's see, how did I say it in there? It was, uh, will perform at or above grade level in all subject areas. That was our goal. And uh, State Department of Ed said, you can't do that. That's not individualized. And I said, well, okay, but this is, this is what we want parents to understand. We want them to, to know this is not some fanciful goal. It's not that they... You know, this notion of special education being based on what I call the doing better model is a, is a failure. You know, if a child gains half a year's progress in a year, is the child making progress? Sure. 
And the child's also falling a half year behind every year, a half year farther behind. So the, this, this idea that as long as they're making some progress, uh, that that's good enough, well, it isn't good enough. You have to have a goal. So good quality Braille instruction, finding ways to deliver it. And if we are able to do that, we raise the expectations of society. We help raise the expectations for that individual blind child and his or her family. And as adults, we help elevate the expectations, the belief that as a blind person, I can, I can pursue whatever it is I want to pursue in this world. And I can do it because I'm literate. So these are a couple of the things that we're doing there. The challenges, as I say, are, are enormous. But uh, I'll end where I began. I am truly, truly appreciative to be here, to be invited, to be with you, uh, because I see you as all part of the, the movement, the, the move toward equal opportunity for blind people and recognizing that foundational to equal opportunity is literacy. So thank you for having me. Fred, are you minded to answer one or two questions? Does anyone have one or two questions for Fred? Hello, Fred. Frank Welty from the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco. And uh, since you're here, you have the opportunity to be speaking to a, a national consumer group. If you could ask us to do one project that would be particularly game-changing in terms of, of moving the ball forward for Braille literacy in the third world, what would that be? Okay, well, you know, the way I feel about it is this. There is so much to be done. The first thing I would, I would answer is, let me throw out a few ideas and you see which one feels best, fits best with you. So for example, uh, I, I have a friend of mine who ran in a, a, not a marathon, it was a triathlon or some, something that you have to be a bit imbalanced to want to go and do. And she, she used that event to get sponsors to raise money to actually buy Orbit readers to send to a school that she had found. So if you think of an Orbit reader as $600, if you and blind people in your community, let's say you could raise uh, $3,000, well that's, let's see, let me do the math, that's five uh, note takers. Um, but maybe you can't raise $3,000. Maybe you're just one person. What can you do? Well, one thing I would try to do is to try to find a family that has a young blind child and be a mentor. Uh, show that family, I mean, read out loud to that family and say, this is, this is reasonable. This isn't because I'm superhuman. It's because I learned Braille as a child, and if your child has a little bit of sight and can read print, that's fine, but if he or she never fully develops fluency in Braille, that child is at, at serious risk. Uh, how many of us had vision 
as kids, you know, at least partial vision. Well, I know I did. I, I was at a, at, you're going to wish you hadn't asked this question. I, I was at a, a meeting where a professor who ran a, a training program for teachers got up and said, it is just as damaging to teach a child Braille who should be a print reader as it is to teach a child print who should be a Braille reader. Now, I don't know about you, I know hundreds and hundreds of blind people, and I know probably hundreds who would say their literacy as adults is compromised because they did not learn Braille as children. And, and yet, I have never once had somebody come up to me and say, you know, I was taught Braille as a child and it damaged me. I, I mean, I'm serious, I've never, so, you know, so is it possible that such a person exists? Well, you know, it's possible a cow will fall out of the sky and hit me, I suppose. It's possible, but to say it's just as damaging, that's, that is alarming to me. It's alarming to me because it speaks to what I think of, frankly, as a bias toward print. And I have nothing against low vision AIDS and so on, if, if you can benefit from them. I don't think even the Hubble telescope would help me at this point, but uh, you know, if you can use some print, nobody's saying you shouldn't look at stuff if you can see it, but your literacy, something that important, uh, has, to be, has to be fully developed. So what can you do? Find a family and mentor them. Uh, get some people together and maybe at a children's um, store, I have two little granddaughters and my daughter takes them off to a bookstore where they have a reading session for, for little preschoolers. So get some blind people to go and volunteer to read at something like this. Now, will there be any blind kids in the audience? Not necessarily, but help society generally and to the degree that we can find blind people and especially blind children, help find ways to encourage them. Friends of mine years ago started the thing in Michigan they called Saturday school uh, because the schools weren't teaching blind kids, they, well, they weren't really stressing Braille the way they should be. So they had this Saturday school where they did Braille reading and writing and then they did some fun activities so the kids didn't like say, oh no, I have to go to set. They liked going. So use your imagination, the needs are huge, but figure out kind of what is the best fit for you, your interests, and resources, both financial and in terms of having other people to join with you. So um, I just wanted to follow up on what, what Fred said about you know, doing something in your community because I, I know people want to help and then you just don't know exactly what to do. But really think about, um, I think the hardest part is, okay, I've got a few things here. I've got uh, some slates and styluses and some paper, some books, and you know, what am I going to do with this now? So what I would say is, 
there, there are places all over the world um, that need things. Um, they need collapsible canes. They need all the you know, paper, writing tools, books, materials. Um, and what I can offer is that since I work at Perkins, we have a division called Perkins International. And there's a team of people who work there. And they do travel all over the world. And they go places all the time. And they literally do take this kind of stuff to these schools for the blind all over the world. Because it's really hard to ship things free matter for the blind anymore to other countries. You have to fill out copious paperwork. It's nothing like it used to be. You used to be able to slap a free matter sticker on something, send it to Barbados or you know Ghana or anywhere and it would just go and it it's not that way anymore you have to fill out all kinds of of customs documents it's it's very burdensome so you know we've gotten to the point where we don't do it as much anymore because it's hard so I'm offering that if you all have these little let's gather up things that are in our drawers that we never touch anymore what about those five fold-up canes in the top of your closet that you, know, you don't use anymore because you bought one last year at the convention? Um, any of those kind of things, you pull it all together and make a nice box full of things that are useful, contact me and I'll make sure it goes somewhere where it can go to good use and you'll know it'll be hand-carried to a school for the blind or a rehabilitation agency that can use it. Okay, okay. okay hold on. Anyone else? Any, okay, all right, just a minute. Yes. Karen. Um, good morning, uh, Dr. Schroeder, really appreciate your presentation. Um, I just wanted to say that um, Dr. Schroeder will also be appearing at Voices this afternoon at 12.15 in some room, sorry, that escapes me, but so please attend. This is Michael Byington, Dr. Schroeder, and uh, our state affiliate to ACB has uh, actually opened an office and uh, tried to maintain some services since our services for the blind in my state has, uh, have almost completely gone away. And uh, we have a Braille library. Lately, we have been receiving some contributions of Braille materials from school 
that from, from school districts that they say they're no longer going to use or circulate because they're now the old Braille, not in UEB. Our position has been if someone learns true Braille literacy, UEB may standardize for everyone across the English-speaking countries, but that Braille is still useful and children or adults can still use it. Now my question is, um, I think the dog put it well. Uh, my, my, my question is, or what I would like you to do is describe the role for the precursor Braille to UEB now and what you think should be happening with all of those Braille documents and books that are not quite in the current code but still exist to provide literacy. Fred? Go Fred. Thank you. So uh, the reason I say it's tricky, there's a, there's a couple of things about it. I, first of all, I agree entirely with your premise that if you're reading UEB, it's not like uh, the old grade two is somehow a foreign language. It's, you know, the differences are, are pretty easy to adapt to. All right, so having said that, to me, the real, uh, there are two challenges. One is technical materials. That's more problematic. Uh, things that are, because not all of the English-speaking world used Nimeth. There were two competing math codes, the, the UK code and, and the US, the Nimeth code. And so one thing that occurs to me is if you have math materials and you ship them off to a place that, that had always used the, the, uh, the UK math code, those materials probably won't be very useful. So some of it's figuring out uh, who can actually use the materials. And then you've got the issue that Kim was just talking about. It is very difficult to ship. So I, I think what I would recommend, the World Blind Union, we have a website that uh, www.wbu.ngo, which stands for non-governmental organization. Uh, so wbu.ngo, and it, on that website we list all of the member organizations around the world. And if you have materials, I would say to, to reach out, uh, if you don't have any starting point, you could reach out to me and we could try to get you connected up. But if you had some thoughts, you know, can they use these materials in Zambia and you don't know, did they used to use the, the UK code or the, or the, or the Nimeth code? Uh, then you can look and, and get a contact and write them. And then the issue is how to get the materials there. But I would also start with that local in-country organization because they may have been successful in getting donated materials to the, sent to them and will know what worked for their country. Some countries, even Braille uh, materials will get held up in customs and be charged high customs taxes so so it gets very it gets very complicated but 
uh, kind of in a thumbnail, that, that would be my recommendation. But don't throw them out. Don't throw those materials out. Hey, this is Renee Zellickson. Um, are you aware that um, um, in Illinois, the Hat what used to be called Hadley School for the Blind now is just called Hadley. They are no longer going to be teaching Braille, this is what I'm hearing, uh, in the way that they used to. They're going to be doing, doing it using video. Um, I don't know that that whole school program is, is changing from what it used to be. And didn't know if you were aware of that or not. Well, that's what I'm hearing. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I hope everyone will join me in, in um, in thanking Fred Schroeder for being here. Fred, we truly appreciated uh, your comments and um, look forward to the opportunity of continuing to, uh, to work with you. In, in addition to working with the World Blind Union, I think Fred still occasionally consults uh, with regard to state agencies for the blind which is uh, another whole, which is another whole can of worms, and an, and another whole set of issues that we need to deal with, and my hope is that that we can build some consensus, not only around the world but in this country as well, because I think one of the things that we have to worry about is that I believe that the way the laws are changing in this country, it's becoming harder and harder to do a good job of rehabilitating people who are blind, and that some of that is being driven by the laws and the regulations um, that are being written by people who have no notion of what it's like to be blind. And by having folks like Fred Schroeder in our corner uh, working for these issues, it's my hope that we can persuade some of the individuals with hard heads um, to do something about modifying their brains. So it's. Um, Fred, thank you so much. I know Marsha won't talk to me if I don't give her a few letters and numbers. <laughs> so the end code for the BRL breakfast is 8A, the letter A, as in uh, Araminta, 5-7, C as in Meow. One. A five seven C one. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. From at one fifteen, uh, and 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 then a, really the major program at one thirty is going to be a comparison of the Braille Me and the Orbit Reader. If you have an opportunity to be there. Um, I'm excited that the developer of the Orbit, Orbit Reader will be there, as well as Lisa Salinger, who has developed tutorials both for the Orbit Reader and the 
um, and the Braille Me for Mystic Access. So I look forward to seeing you guys this afternoon at BRL. Thank you. Bye.